Thank you. My name is Sajal Patel, and I am also on the Alumni Alumni Council. And I've counted about 200 smiles that I've put in my pocket over the last two days. I hope you guys have a similar tally. We have two very, very exciting presentations to end the intellectual nourishment of these wonderful last few days. I have the great privilege of introducing Professor Cornell West and Sasha Degani. Uh, Professor West is Professor of the Practice of Public Philosophy here at HDS. He has taught at Yale, Harvard, the University of Paris, Princeton, and most recently, the Union Theological Seminary. He graduated magna cum laude from Harvard in three years and obtained his master's and PhD in philosophy at Princeton. He has authored 20 books and is best known for his classics, Race Matters and Democracy Matters, and his memoir, Brother West, Living and Loving Out Loud. He appears frequently on The Bill Maher Show, CNN, C-SPAN, and Tavis Smiley's PBS show. He is the creator of three spoken word albums, including Never Forget, collaborating with Prince, Jill Scott, Andre 3000, Talib Koili, KRS-One, and Gerald Levert. His spoken word interludes were featured on Terence Blanchard's Choices, which won the 2009 Grand Prix in France for the best jazz album of the year. Cornell West's theories, Second Rome, Raheem Devon's Grammy-nominated Love and War masterpiece, and most recently, Bootsy Collins's Funk Capital of the World. Passionate about keeping alive the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. in his writing, in his public discourse, and through the arts, the legacy of truth-telling, bearing witness to love and justice. We are so proud to have Professor West here at HDS and with us today. In, in conversation with Professor West is Sasha Degani, a visiting scholar at the CSWR. He has his master's in Islamic studies, political science, and Protestant theology and religious studies from the Friedrich Schiller University, Jena, and a PhD from the Freie University, Berlin. He has been a research associate at the Center for Literary and Cultural Research in Berlin and has taught courses on Shiite Islam, Islamic intellectual history, and the Baha'i faith at the Free University of Berlin and the Christian Albrecht University of Kiel, where he was a visiting assistant professor. He currently works at the research department of the Baha'i World Center in Haifa. His research at the CSWR this year focuses on the classification of the Baha'i faith as a world religion, comparing the classification in the German Academy with that of Anglo-American and the Islamic world. Please again, let's give a warm welcome to our two wonderful speakers. Yeah, you gonna do your thing. Dear friends, uh, dear Harvard alumni, uh, Harvard Divinity School, it's a pleasure and a privilege to be here today. Um, just a few minutes before I came on stage, I spoke with Professor Cornel West and I suggested I should start before everyone came to see him. So I was afraid if he starts, once he's done, everyone will leave the tent. So 
it's much better to do it that way. Um, in addition, I have, of course, it's unnecessary to say uh, the question in your mind is, who is Sasha Dehkani? <laughs> so to some extent, I will try to answer this question. And of course, uh, when we want to achieve things in life, uh, you know, there's this famous statement that we should sit on the uh, shoulders of the giants. Now today, I will sit next to such a giant. Um, I might look very small. Um, that's fine. Um, I don't think actually that my research as such is that important. But I hope that by the end of the few minutes that I will present to you today, it will get clear why I think the topic that I want to speak to you has some significance. And thank you for coming and listening to that. Just yesterday, we had Professor Daniel Allen, um, who was speaking about the question of violence. And some of you who were here, you might remember that she was telling a story of her cousin and she's writing a book about this cousin and the violence that he and he had endured um, in his life that is her cousin a few weeks ago i had the pleasure to see professor daniel allen uh, in the harvard um, uh, conference on inclusion and belonging and in that conference she had organized and gathered a number of different um, academics uh, from harvard university who spoke very privately they shared their life stories very truthful, some of it at times tragic, but certainly always enriching. And uh, the Harvard president, Faust, she was there, and they all encouraged us to tell stories. So I thought, I have read a lot for today, but at the end with so many theories and names in my mind, I gave up and I thought actually what I will do, I will start with a story that is related to my life. And hopefully this story will help us to understand what the question of religion and non-violence and also what the topic of the Baha'i faith and Baha'u'llah is that I'm going to present today. Sometimes in life there are there's a synchronicity and parallels that come like a mystery and it's difficult to explain. Karl Jaspers spoke about the axial age, people appearing at the same time, things happening at the same time. The development of the Baha'i religion, which is by now considered as the youngest world religion, as such, has many parallels to the important steps of the history of the United States, which I cannot go very deep today because of the time. But I just want to mention to you three of the parallel things. Baha'u'llah, the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith, was born in 1817. That is, this year is the bicentenary of Baha'u'llah, which overlaps, fortunately for me, with the Harvard Divinity School bicentenary. I think that explains why I'm standing here today. In 1848, and we have Professor Shahla Ha'eri here, who is an expert on, and many other friends of course as well, on the question of women and Iran. In 1848, Baha'u'llah himself uh, gathered a number of uh, Babis at the conference of Badasht and helped and assisted a young Iranian woman by the name Tahereh Boratul Ain to remove the veil publicly as a sign not only for the advent of a new religion, but also as a sign for the equality of men and women. And Baha'u'llah was a major force. Now we know 1848 was Seneca Falls, a group of women which gathered in the United States, albeit collectively, whereas in Iran it was one courageous woman who tried to do the same. And in 1863, Baha'u'llah then banished from Tehran to Baghdad, and I might have a few minutes later on to talk to you about that, in the year where uh, Lincoln, in this uh, important country of the United States, 
abolished slavery, and this year actually Baha'u'llah proclaimed his message to humanity. So now I will come to the story which I wanted to tell you. In 1981, I was in the age of around six years, you can now start to count how old I am. I have now reached the age of 40, and 40 is a dangerous age for you who are familiar with religious history. Muhammad claimed to get revelation on the mountain of Hera. Uh, Moses wandered to the wilderness for 40 years, and Baha'u'llah himself was 40 years also in banishment. So the age of 40 is quite dangerous, but I promise I have no revelation for you today except the fact that I will share some story that is related to my childhood. <clears throat> in the age of six years, um, I was born in Tehran, uh, in Iran, and left <clears throat> later on and went to Germany. Now I live in Israel, and you can imagine I'm kind of the horror for any security out there in the world when I have to get through, and my name is Sasha, something, or my parents might have been communists. Anyways, when I, when I was in the age of six, <clears throat> one family member of ours, one year after the revolution, by the name Hedayatollah Dehqani, <clears throat> was imprisoned, not in Tehran, but in the city of Shiraz. He was imprisoned with another friend, Mehdi Anvari. Hedayatollah Dehqani from my family, the uncle of my mother, was a pretty successful businessman. Mehdi Anvari was a medical doctor, as far as, as I can remember, I was in the age of six. So you know that after the revolution in Iran, many things changed. Uh, one of the things that happened is that the Islamic government quickly adopted a constitution. And this constitution of Iran, the Article 13, says very explicitly that Jewish, Zoroastrian, and Christian people are accepted as religious minorities and only these. Which means the Baha'is, the biggest religious minority in Iran with 300,000 people, are even by constitution, right from the beginning of the revolution, excluded from any rights. In very practical uh, terms, this, this meant step by step that Baha'is and the leaders of the Baha'i institutions were not only brought to prison, but also the Baha'is didn't have the right to higher education, which is still, till nowadays, it hasn't changed. They, they have, they, uh, in a way, they go to strangulation in economy, in professional life, and many things. But the story I have today is just like a glimpse of what happened to the Baha'is, representative to a much bigger community that we have in Iran. When Hedayatollah Dehqani and Mehdi Anvari were in prison, the hope at that time, and still nowadays, is the same when the Baha'is are imprisoned. The major, the, um, the leading institution of the Baha'is, seven members of the Baha'is are at the moment since eight or nine years imprisoned in Iran as well. When the Baha'is are imprisoned, one of the hopes of the government in Iran is that they would recant their faith, that they would say they are not Baha'is anymore. And when they figure out after a while that regardless of torture or what happens to them, that is not going to happen, then after giving the chance, generously one has to say, that they can you know, convert to Islam, when they uh, keep being, believing in their faith and they stay steadfast, then usually the death penalty is what happens to them. So Mehdi Anvari and Hedayatollah Dehqani were both killed in 1980 after it got clear to the soldiers and to the prison in Shiraz that they will not recount their faith. What happened is at first, they staged a mocked execution. 
So they pretended as if they were going to soldiers, as if they were going to shoot them, but they didn't. They just shoot in the air. And of course, you know, that might have been the hope that that will trigger such a terror in their heart that now they will come to reason and they will accept to convert to Islam, which didn't take place. Then, of course, the second attempt, Hidayatullah, Dehqani, and Mahdi, Anwari, they were both uh, killed, and from Baha'i perspectives, they are seen as martyrs. Now, why do I tell this story today, and why did I want to st start with this story? <clears throat> William Sears, an American Baha'i and a very famous journalist in the United States, was in contact with many Baha'is in Iran. And he wrote a book, The Cry of the Heart, which was written a few years after the Islamic Revolution. In this book, in chapter 9, for those who are, of you who are interested in that, he speaks about uh, what happened to Hidayatullah Dehkhani and Mehdi Anwari. The interesting thing is which I learned to that book, I, I had not heard from my family and I was in the age of six, I was in Iran still, is that he says that Mehdi Anwari had written a testament, a last will, and he asked in this last will his children to go to the soldiers in prison and to give them sweets and flowers. Now you can imagine that was not that easy for the children to do. <laughs> that wasn't something that came very easy to the family as such. But this was his last will. And I thought, starting with this story, it's a good introduction to the question of religion and nonviolence. And there are several lessons that I at least always found in, the, in what happened at that time. First of all, it shows us that Baha'is, if they follow the teachings and principles of Baha'u'llah, are not willing to hate. Indeed, there is actually not a second to hate for us, friends, in this life, but we should struggle for justice and social change, but in a way of constructive resilience. We shouldn't dehumanize those who think we are their enemies. Because by reacting with violence to violence, we close the door. We are not able to create enough space for the other side who has decided to become the other to have this change in their life. And I think here is a huge parallel in what I, in my very limited knowledge, but I'm happy that Professor West is here today, to some extent this overlaps with some of the principles of Martin Luther King. So very clearly, nonviolence is the response that the Baha'is choose. This story, however, tells us also something in addition. It, it shows us that the Baha'is, who are usually asked to be loyal and obedient to any government in the world, regardless of the oppression that they witness, which is a principle of the Baha'i faith, but when it comes to the principle of faith and the pr principle of conscience, no temporal power and force in the world has permission to decide for any individual in this world what he or she believes in. So I would say here we have some aspect of disobedience which is justified from the Baha'i perspective. But in many other matters, the Baha'is in Iran, the dissolvement of their institutions, 
that Baha'i literature cannot be published, that only literature that exists in Iran since more than 30 years by now is constantly written against the Baha'is, that the Baha'i accepted. But when it came to principles of faith, they were not able to give up what they thought regardless of what happened. The third point, of course, what the story shows, and I mentioned it briefly, and because of the limited time, I will also just not to go too deep into this question, is of course the Islamic government as such see the Baha'is as a threat, otherwise they wouldn't do what they did. Now I am far, um, I have a few minutes, but thank you, I, I need just a bit longer. Um, so to, to be clear, um, is that the Islamic government as such, and I'm not trying to present Islamic civilization or religion in any ways as a dangerous religion. I'm just speaking about the experience of the Baha'is. As a matter of fact, at the funeral of Hedayatullah Dekhani, hundreds of people were gathered. And many of them were Muslims because this uncle in my family was married to a Muslim. It was not a big question to Baha'is. So I'm far away from that. But in the Islamic religion, as I said in the Constitution number 13, the article, um, what Islamic theology permits is the existence of pre-Islamic monotheistic religions. That's why Judaism, Christianity, or Zoroastrianism are respected. But when it comes to a monotheistic religion with a prophetic claim after Muhammad, there's no such space for such a religion in Islamic theology. And the Islamic theologians and jurisprudence is struggling with this question, and fortunately, step by step, more people are coming to this direction to accept um, that great, uh, space has to be created for the existence of a prophetic religion after Muhammad. Because in, from the perspective of the Baha'is, Muhammad, Jesus, Moses, or Buddha are all inspired divine messengers sent to humanity at different times. So Baha'is believe that for nowadays Baha'u'llah has come and what he is bringing to humanity is as well inspired, but there is the idea of progressivity. Prophecy cannot stop from Baha'i perspective. The prophetic voice is needed, and this created kind of a clash. So, with your permission, I will just speak, if that's okay, I will add a few sentences about the background to 1981 and what it has to do with Baha'u'llah and the bicentenary of Baha'u'llah, which six, seven million Baha'is in the world this year are and will be celebrating. In the year 1863, um, Baha'u'llah, when he was banished from Tehran to Baghdad, uh, shortly before, again, he was banished from Baghdad to the Ottoman period, he gathered a number of believers in a garden in Baghdad. And in this garden, he actually pronounced the main principles of the Baha'i faith. That is that prophecy continues and with him the promised one of the Babi religion has come and of the past. And then two other principles which he announced, which I think is important to understand in 1981. These two other principles is that Baha'u'llah says that the principle of the sword and militant jihad is annulled and abrogated, it is abolished. So Baha'is are not permitted to spread or defend religion by the means of the sword. The second thing that Baha'u'llah announced is a very theological principle 
but I think at the Harvard Divinity School I might be permitted to speak a bit about the existence of God. So from the Baha'i perspective, as in other, all other monotheistic religions, God shows and manifests himself to his divine names and attributes. Love, generosity, knowledge, kindness, they have positive existence. Actually, from Baha'i perspective, the negative things and sin is an absence of the development of the good side. So Baha'u'llah says if there is one source for humanity, if all human beings come from this one source, the conclusion should be there is one religion. All religions, at least in their core teachings, are one. But in addition, because of that spiritual connection to the one source, everything is merged into the sea and ocean of purity, says Baha'u'llah. So the concept of being impure, that so many religions in the past you know, have abused, doesn't exist. And if there's a chosen people, all humanity, regardless of race, of religion and gender, all are chosen people. There is no such thing as us and them. And Baha'u'llah explicitly writes about the idea of a unification of mankind but a, but a unity that is not uniformity, but diversity. Alain Locke, a very famous PhD in philosophy in African-American Baha'i, wrote about the principle of unity and diversity. And he was a close friend of W.E.B. Du Bois, who both were very close to Abdul Baha, the son of Baha'u'llah. And Du Bois actually met Abdul Baha while Abdul Baha was traveling in the United States. And then Du Bois, chose to publish the picture, the photo of Abdul Baha in his journal, The Crisis. The reason why he did that was that Abdul Baha had given a talk at the NAACP and the major content of that talk is regardless of the color. God looks at the heart. He does not look at our outer appearance of black or white if we are yellow or green. When we are created in the image of God, says Abdul Baha, it's the character that counts. And all the characters in this world, according to Abdul Baha, deserve um, equal rights and equal opportunities in this life. As you can see, when I get started, it is difficult to stop me, but I know we have a beautiful, wonderful soul next to me, who I really, I don't know how to thank him because I wouldn't stand here today without his generous offer. So with your permission, although I really have much more to say, I will stop and I will hand over and I know you will not run away now. Thank you so much. That was wonderful, brother. That was wonderful. That was wonderful. What a blessing to be here to celebrate 200 years of a rich legacy that goes back to 1816-17 with memories, of course, of the great Ralph Waldo Emerson giving that July 15th, 1838 address to the six graduating seniors. There were seven, but only six showed up. And after that address, Ralph Waldo Emerson was banned from Harvard for 30 years. That's part of the great prophetic legacy of the Harvard Divinity School. 
I want to thank my dear brother Sasha. He is a magnificent human being. His soul, his heart, his mind has moved me in our discussions dealing with the wonderful overlap of the black freedom movement and our precious Baha'i who to this day continue to be persecuted in countries all around the world. Let us never forget. I want to thank Brother Mike, who's been just magnificent in facilitating this event and all of those who are working with him. Thank you so much, my sister Patel, the distinguished Esquire and lawyer. I don't want to take too much of your time, but I do want to say something about the fact that we're living in one of the most terrifying moments in the history of this nation. And we've got to return to the source. Existential sources, who are we? Institutional sources, who are those who constitute our synagogues and our mosques and our temples and our churches and our civic institutions in this Trump moment? And the Trump moment can be characterized roughly as an escalating spiritual blackout. The relative eclipse of integrity, honesty, decency, and courage, and the prevalence of big business, big money, big corporations, greed, envy, resentment, scapegoating the most vulnerable, and are not enough people confronting the most powerful. And our challenge is how do we constitute prophetic coalitions, prophetic religious coalitions? Thank God for our secular Brooklyn-based Jewish brother who lives in Vermont named Bernie Sanders. It's true. He's keeping alive the best of a prophetic tradition and it comes in a variety of different forms. But for each and every one of us, concerned about justice, nonviolence, concerned about equality, concerned about the preservation of democracy, small d in all of its various forms. Our first question is, who are we? Who am I? And I stand here as not a graduate of the Harvard Divinity School, but one as student at Harvard College was so deeply, deeply shaped by students like James Melvin Washington and Fred Lucas and Boykin Sanders. And of course, Professor Preston Williams is the godfather of so many of us, and especially we chocolate ones because he was the only one in a vanilla sea who was chocolate enough, not because of his skin pigmentation, but because of his acknowledgement of being part of a tradition. And his tradition is my tradition. And that tradition, of course, has a variety of different streams and strands, but it's a tradition of a people who have been so chronically and systemically hated and yet still taught the world so much about how to love. I could just turn on John Coltrane's Love Supreme right now and sit down. Just sit down. Or read James Baldwin's Love Soak essays to keep track of the love witness of Martin Luther King Jr. and Fannie Lou Hamer. This is not just a matter of isolated individuals. They've been shaped by a certain prophetic religious soul craft, to use the old language of the medieval thinkers. 
And a soul craft is a shaping of a self, a formation of attention that attends to the important things, not the superficial things. It's the maturation of a soul that allows you to preserve your capacity to love and your capacity to fight for justice. And that wonderful formulation of Joseph Temple of 1636, one of the grand pilgrims who arrived and said, we need more charitable Christian hatred. <laughs> and I love that formulation. And the hatred of the sin and the love of the sinner. A hatred of injustice and unfairness, but keeping track with the humanity of the other. And so here we are in the most commodified, marketized, commercialized culture in the history of the world, buying and selling, obsession with getting over by any means, focused on the 11th commandment, thou shalt not get caught. Let's turn to any business page, scandal after scandal after scandal. Many churches, mosques, synagogues, and temples, scandal after scandal after scandal. The market model has become so ubiquitous and hegemonic that it's hard for us to conceive with our imaginations and empathy an alternative world that is not dictated by oligarchs and plutocrats who disproportionately shape just not only a, the political lethargy of our government, but in the culture, and especially the culture of our precious young people of all colors. And we're living in a moment of moral and spiritual awakening. The movement for black lives, the ecological movement, the intensification of the anti-homophobic movement. Lo and behold, the awakening of slices of the trade union movement. And most importantly, the need for and the increase day by day of an anti-war movement. Because when you talk about nonviolence, you're talking about a critique of militarism. You're talking about a critique of the military industrial complex. You're talking about a critique every, 50, every dollar 54 cents goes to the military industrial complex. We don't have a language that permeates the culture to understand that. 26,172 bombs dropped last year by the Nobel Peace Prize winner, President. Oh, we don't like to talk about that. Trump commits his own war crimes and we go ballistic. 12,000 bombs dropped on Syria last year before Trump got into office. Where's our moral consistency? Where's what James Austin called constancy? We've got to be willing to tell the truth and the condition of truth is always to allow suffering to speak. And we've got to have an unapologetic love and we know we religious folk have no monopoly on unapologetic love, let alone courage. And I don't even like to talk about courage these days. I like to talk about fortitude because fortitude is that creative fusion of courage and magnanimity of greatness of character, a Nazi soldier can be courageous and still be a thug and a gangster because they got a thuggish cause. But fortitude is when you have your courage with spiritual and moral dimensions to it. And that's the tradition that I'm talking about that Preston Williams and the others exemplified when I first arrived. I want to take you back to 1919. The War Committee before the U.S. Senate there's Archibald Stevens who steps to the, the seat it gives a report 
He said, I've got 16 people who are dangerous American citizens, but the most destructive, the most dangerous American citizen alive is Jane Adams. Oh, we forget that, don't we? Why? Because she was committed to nonviolence. Why? Because she was a pacifist. Why? Because she opposed World War I. Ed Bemis, her, her colleague at the University of Chicago, was released immediately when he marched against World War I. Professors were pushed out of their job at Columbia University. Charles Beard, the grand American historian, left. They founded the new school in part because they wanted some relative autonomy because they thought, my God, these universities are so obsessed with objectivity and value-free inquiry. But as soon as the country goes to war, that drops out. And it's all mobilization across the board. How come? Because of catastrophe. We say, oh, wait a minute. What do you think indigenous people's been dealing with since 1492? That's catastrophe. What do you think slavery and Jim Crow and Jane Crow's about? That's catastrophe. What do you think a working class ruled by robber barons unable to engage in collective bargaining until the 1930s were dealing with? That's catastrophe too. But only when it's catastrophe in its nationalistic form do the universities all of a sudden mobilize all of their resources and go on a crusade. Thank God for William James. Didn't graduate from Harvard Divinity School, but he learned a lot <laughs> from Harvard Divinity School professors. You all know William James had no AB, he had no MA, he had no PhD. All he had was an MD and a whole lot of wisdom and courage. And he wrote an essay in 1910 called The Moral Equivalent of War. How do you find spiritual analogs, moral analogs so people are on fire fighting against poverty, fighting for justice, and motivated by something deeper than justice. It's all right to quote Reinhold Niebuhr at Harvard Divinity School, even though he's Union Theological Seminary's darling. He said, any justice that's only justice soon degenerates into something less than justice. Justice must be rescued by something deeper than justice. And that's love, that's empathy, that's a willingness to sacrifice. It's a self-emptying, it's kenosis. And that's what we need these days. To connect with the best of the exemplars. And I'm not talking about market-driven celebrities, I'm talking about spiritually laden exemplars. Never confuse exemplarity with celebrity and if you are a celebrity or find yourself a celebrity you better be a spiritually informed exemplar or you will end up betraying the best of the tradition that's gone into you and for me the greatest honor I've ever received in my life trying to be a love warrior and that's very different than being a polished professional too, much, too many polished professionals are shot through with conformity. They're shot through with complacency. And sometimes just downright cowardice in order to preserve their careers and opportunities rather than bear witness and bear the cost and come to terms with the consequences. But for me, to return to the source before I sit down, it has, has everything to do with being the second son of Irene and Clifton West. Mom and dad are not just ordinary folk. They're very much like that black cafeteria worker that Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel met when he went to Cincinnati 
leaving Jew-hating Europe. And he made close friends with that black man in Cincinnati. He went to the Black Baptist Church. He was also a deacon in that black church in Cincinnati. And Hesher would say in his journals, he would say in his autobiography, what? I never met a man with such unbelievable integrity and honesty as that black brother David. That's one of the reasons why it opened my eyes to white supremacy so I can march with Martin Luther King Jr. and others. It's just not a matter of the iconic figures at the top. It's the concrete encounter of people who have integrity and honesty that change your life and force you to contest and call into question your own prejudices and presuppositions. And we need context, multiracial context, multireligious context with that kind of interaction can affect us at the existential level. Well, you see, if Brother Heschel had met mom and dad, it would have had the same effect. <laughs> same effect. If he had spent some time on the chocolate side of town at Shiloh Baptist Church in Sacramento, California, where I come from with the legendary Willie P. Cook and my Deacon Deacon Hinton, they would have had the same effect. These are persons of unbelievable integrity, not pure. They're flawed, but they represent the best of a prophetic legacy on the ground. You won't read about them in a textbook, but the figures in that textbook do not exist without them. It reminds me in some ways of that black preacher in Philadelphia who knocked on the door of the Coltrane family when John Coltrane came up from North Carolina and the young brother was blowing his horn. He had lost his grandfather, his grandmother, and his father all within a matter of months. He was living all by himself. His mother and cousin Mary had gone to Philadelphia and all he did was blow his horn trying to bring back his parents. When he finally got to Philadelphia, he kept on blowing. and kept on blowing all day, all night. And the folks in the projects on the chocolate side of Philadelphia said, we got to get rid of this Negro. It's making too much noise. And they voted to vote the Coltrane family out. And the day before they going to move out, they got a knock on the door. And there was a black preacher. He was a Baptist preacher. John Coltrane was AME Zion. Nice ecumenical connection. <laughs> but he knocked on that door. He said, son, I don't know what your name is, but these are the keys of my church. You can come to my church and blow anytime you want, all day or all night. And Coltrane would say as he played Love Supreme in his own mind and soul, I'm thinking about that concrete love. I don't exist without that black preacher who gave me that key so I could practice in that church because I was being booted out with my mother working as a domestic mate. That's the kind of soul warriorship that we need in the age of Trump so that we can generate the kinds of coming together with vision and with witness. And we'll see whether we can do it. Thank you all so very much. We'll open it up. We'll open up the question. We'll open up the question. We've got Sister Anne Marie back here. We're ready for some questions. Our dear brother on the right here, too. Uh, this question is, my name is Pierre Barastain. I'm a yeah. graduate of the Divinity School from 2014. And this is a question for both of you. Uh, there's been tremendous uh, fear in the immigrant community. I myself am an immigrant. I was undocumented and now under DACA. 
Uh, and there's been a lot of criticism of Harvard University for not declaring itself a so-called sanctuary campus. What is your opinion um, of Harvard, Harvard Divinity School, as institutions that can provide safety for, its, for the students who, who go here? Yes. You want to jump in first? Oh, that's for you. Well, no, I, I think, I mean, first you got principal and you got practice, and the question becomes, what, what, what are the ways in which we can ensure that there's legal defense moral defense of the students on the ground. It's not going to be just a matter of posing and posturing about how good we are. When they are in crisis, are you going to come to the rescue? Now that for me is the fundamental measure, crucial measure. Now generally speaking, yes, in principle indeed it's very important that we make public declarations and so forth. But the crucial thing would be when the test will be when our precious students are being charged, being targeted, will the university then come to the defense? If the university comes to the defense of 99 out of 100 and would still defend that one, with whatever the, doctor, whatever the declaration is, that's a positive thing. Because that's what you want, that's what you want. You want to make sure you as a student and so many others are defended and make sure that you don't have to worry about being insecure, anxiety-ridden, targeted, and so forth and so on. The, the ideal situation would be, of course, for Harvard University to declare itself a sanctuary. But Harvard University as a sanctuary for the vulnerable? Well, that's, that's a stretch. That's a stretch. It really is. And the reason why I say that is because you know, we live in a community, we live in a society where there's a lot of centrists, there's a lot of right-wing folk, there's a lot of xenophobes. We're not the only ones in the country. And we push and we bring pressure to bear, but we recognize that Harvard is not the exemplification of the prophetic. Has never been. There's been prophetic figures, prophetic individuals, prophetic professors, prophetic janitors, prophetic whole host of at Harvard, but Harvard in general, if they banned Ralph Emerson in 1838, and he hadn't even got out his abolitionist lectures yet. You see what I mean? So I'm not putting, I in no way want to, 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 to give a pass to Harvard, but most importantly, we want to keep the focus where it belongs, which is on the suffering of the students and the need to protect the students. But you jump right in. Yeah, I mean, thank you so much. I, I uh, appreciate what you said because I, I'm a fellow at Harvard, so um, I'm not part of the faculty. I'm yeah. the, as certainly not as prominent as the gentleman next to my left. So, but some of the thoughts that I had related to Harvard, actually they came to me in the last months, is maybe less about the question of sanctuary, but our responsibility as an as a institution of higher academic, you know, institution that Harvard is a leading institution in the world. And the question of responsibility of the academics and the intellectuals. Um, we all know the famous case of Samuel Huntington, who is a Harvard professor, who passed away some years ago, who wrote The Clash of Civilizations, as we know. Mm. And I was very astonished when I read this book how, and now coming from the perspective of Harvard and leading professors, and the responsibilities that we have also as intellectuals, not to create division in this world, you see? Huntington to me is a very fascinating um, exemplar for whatever you, you want to mm. take him as an exemplar. Mm. He combines to me truth 
and some things that are not true, really. Um, to the things that really astonished me is, because you spoke about the question, who are we? You know, he has a second book after The Clash of Civilization. He wrote, Who Are We? And in both books, actually, his main approach, not only to Harvard, but the question of the West, is the question of identity. And what he does, he literally says in The Clash of Civilizations, we know who we are when we know who we are not and against whom we are. So is that really necessary for a professor in such a leading position at Harvard or any other professor at such a university, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, wherever you want to go, to think about the identity of human beings in light of us and them? And so no wonder that after he says, well, that's a, it's a sad truth, but it is a truth, so we need the enemy. And then he comes with the West against the rest, which I don't think he meant Cornell West. He meant really the West <laughs> against the rest. But it could also have been you against her, I don't know. And then he, he speaks about all of these strange principles. And the, the enemy that he finds is Islam mm. and China. And this, of course, then has impact on students, on the life of the students, and how we, we, we educate people around us and our colleagues and our relationship to them. Now, I wouldn't be naive and would say, oh, there is no danger in Islamic terrorism. I, don't, I think uh, there is a huge problem, and it has to be addressed. But I don't think we can do it in this way. And so once he has identified as a Harvard professor, that's why I speak about it, the external mm. enemy, who is the internal enemy and who are we? It's the Mexicans. For those of you who have read the book, he says that, that the progress of the United States is pretty much white nativism, and the decline of the country is based on Catholic Hispanics. And then he again talks about the, the problem of enemies and the necessity to have an enemy. And at one point, he even quotes Goebbels. Now, for those of you who are familiar with German history, I haven't seen anyone in the last years, if I'm not wrong, please, as intelligent audience, you will go and read yourself, if that's true what I'm saying. But I really remember how he would find all of these quotes about the necessity of find, uh, having enemies. So I think in, in a wider sense, right, this is related to the, what we are presenting today. And it is, as I said, less the question of sanctuary and practical things. I, I leave all of these questions mm. to uh, wonderful Professor West because I'm a visiting fellow. I'm here for a few months. I learned about the United States. And in, in less than a few weeks, I'm gone, <laughs> which is not that, that bad for you because you, then someone else can come and give another presentation. But as such, I think it is very, very important to come out of the problem, the irresponsibility of the academics around us. Mm -hmm. and, and the language that we use, you know? And even in philosophy, when you look at Marxism and you look at Nietzsche, and I come from the German tradition, I love Germany. I am really proud of my country that has accepted one million refugees. Personally, I'm speaking as Sasha, not as a representative. I'm not speaking as a representative of the Baha'i world today. It's just my humble personal thoughts. And although I love the Germans, one thing that is very interesting in the German tradition is the radical, the, the radical spirit that exists. Whatever someone starts like Nietzsche or Marx or Freud, they take it to such an extreme that there is space for nothing else. Now that is great because they're really convinced about what they're doing and the passion and the love, although Nietzsche wouldn't, wouldn't accept that the Holy Spirit went through them. 
But that's there. But at the same time, there is some danger in intellectual totalitarianism. And we have to think much deeper about these questions out there. Now I, I stop at this point. I, my two cents on Harvard. Um, question. Um, I was going to ask, are we in a bubble? But I'm not going to ask that. I will ask, what do you feel in your heart, in your head, when people say you're in a bubble? You're thinking in a bubble. I don't mean just you. I mean us. Us. Um, uh. And I know you, uh, Professor West, you're often in a venue where you're sometimes you're butting heads with people who would think that you're in a bubble. And when I say bubble, I, I think you know what I mean, the political Oh, thing. yeah. No, I think we have to proceed on the notion that all of us have our own version of learned ignorance. We all have a certain parochialism and provincialism, and our end and aim is to shatter it. But it's endless, it's, in, it's always incomplete, it's always unfinished. So in that sense, somebody says, well, you're in a bubble. You say, well, tell me exactly the ways in which the bubble operates in my thinking, because I know it's true I've got some limitation and blind spots pointed out to me because I am deeply committed to seeing in order to do and bear witness and live and love and laugh. So in that sense, that's what Pi Day is all about, right? We learn how to die in order to learn how to live by shattering our parochialism, letting go certain assumptions, and end up more compassionate, more critical, and we hope more courageous with more fortitude. But all of us have a certain kind of bubble. But it's one thing to be in a very narrow bubble. You only talk to people who look like you. You only talk to people who agree with you. You only read certain things that are an echo chamber of what you think. That's a bubble in which it's hard to grow and mature. No doubt about that. But on the other hand, it's not as if there's anybody who is bubble-less. <laughs> They're in space and time. We all got context and horizons in which we get locked in, and we need to be unsettled. We need to be contested in that way. Yeah. But it's very important, too, that there be movements and, and, and organizing in which the people who are willing to fight and sacrifice. That's in, I, I wouldn't call that a bubble. I would call that a choice of trying to change the world in such a way that more love and justice is manifest. But there's other parts of your life. You're going to end up reading poetry of a reactionary called T.S. Eliot, who you love, who I love. You see what I mean? I'm going to be listening to Bruckner, Catholic reactionary. But I like his music. You see what I mean? And at the same time, I'm going to read some anarchists who... I love too. <laughs> so there, there's a sign that we have a few more minutes. Um, my, my thoughts related to that, um, if, if I may just the question of bubble, and we were asked what we think about that when, when we were asked the question. I mean, to try to take it as, as the highest point possible for me, um, it's somehow to live in a bubble. I mean, if it's a bubble and it takes up, up upwards, from a theological perspective, spiritually, that's nice. We're going upwards. But to live in a bubble means to have a very closed understanding of reality, right? And I think one of the dangers, and coming from the prophetic voice of Baha'u'llah, one of the dangers that we have in the, in, the, in the world nowadays is certainly this deep, entrenched problem, problem of we against the other, and the question of partisan politics, to see everything in the question of 
you know, forced to see it from the left or from the right, but I, my feeling is we have to get out of this. We have to, in order to achieve unity, and I think the United States will need that a lot in the coming years, these voices. You know, a house that is divided will not stand. This is what, 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 what your president in the 19th century said very clearly. And the question of how to achieve unity, not uniformity, That's right. is, is a very, very deep and important question. That's right. I know that Cornel West, in his theories about democracy, has a very interesting point. He says democracy is less about election or due process. It is about giving other people a voice. Isn't that what he did today by inviting me to come on stage? And what does the voice do? It creates a conversation. Baha'is all around the world, from children age to junior youth age to adults, are engaged in different activities. It is about spiritual capacity building, to learn a language that unites people and does not separate us. And I think that is very important to start to teach that from a very early age and in a non-sectarian way, mm. to be open to invite everyone to join this idea, to have a conversation as part of democracy, a meaningful conversation. Absolutely. And not to speak about the money and the fame, and now I'm in Harvard, and now I have that. You know, violence can have many forms. It's not just Islamic or Christian fundamentalism. It can have many forms, believe me. Mm. And for us to move, move out of the question of violence, it needs much more education, ethical, moral virtues. And one thing which I couldn't go into it, and I know they want to stop us, which is fine, which I couldn't, but I just want to mention it. You see, the question of religion and nonviolence is not just a phenomenon in the Baha'i faith. In my field of theology, I learned that one huge similarity to the Baha'i community is early Christianity. The example of Jesus, although he only had 12 disciples, as Martin Luther King said, but how he was able to change reality around him. He didn't bring just a new theology. He, was, he came to bring a new civilization. And I don't think that civilization was inviting people to live in a bubble, what Jesus brought. And for 300 years, the Christians were willing to suffer. And isn't in suffering in itself something, you know, that, that is part of our humanity and we should embrace it. But whereas in the materialistic, capitalistic society, we're running away from, from suffering. We are afraid of talking about death. Let's talk about sex, we have these songs, but no one wants to talk about the things in life that are difficult. But if we take a look at early Christianity or at Buddhism and other traditions, even early Islam, Muhammad in the Mecca period, there are beautiful principles for humanity to be embraced and step by step to create a new and higher organism. And Adam and Eve, if we want to take it serious, was a family. In the time of Jesus, the philosophers like Plato and Aristotle would write about the polis. The politeia is centered on the polis. It's a city-state. With Muhammad and after Muhammad, we had the idea of ummah. Some people translate it as a nation. But nowadays, we need an interdependent global uh, existence. An interdependent global existence that brings us all together. And I see our dear friend Michael Goetz is pointing at the time. So I will stop at this point. Thank you so much. Thank also, you thank you again, much. Professor West. Thank you very much.
We got the great Harvey Cox. Harvey Cox is on the way. Harvey Cox is on the way.